You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And as the children are dismissed, let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible, grab that and go with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible this morning. You'll find stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. Take one. That's our gift to you. In fact, you can grab one now and use it to follow along with us this morning as we look at Matthew's Gospel. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Uh, The full text we're looking at is Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21 and going all the way to the end of the chapter. Listen carefully to God's Word. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience, friend, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then comes Jesus' closing line, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This Christmas season, we have been focusing on forgiveness, why we need it, where to find it, and coming to rest in it. You and I need forgiveness because we are sinners by nature and choice, by condition and action. And you and I can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the God-man who left his place in heaven and came to earth to bear the penalty for our sins. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness of sin and newness of life, inner transformation. But last week we learned that inner transformation doesn't mean perfection. Before faith in Christ, we were slaves to the power of sin. Now, we've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin, though sin remains present in our lives. We are engaged in a continual and irreconcilable war against it. And sometimes, sin wins the day. Sometimes, 
we fail. And when we fail, as we all do, we don't wallow in self-pity, nor do we bounce back with self-confidence. Rather, we rest in our forgiveness. We return again and again to the cross. The Christian lives all of life at the cross, under the cross, the blood of Jesus flowing down and covering our every sin. That's the good news of the gospel. And if that's true, then it's also true that living there at the cross, that's where we meet other people. It's not just that the blood of Jesus flows down and covers our every sin. It's also true that the blood of Jesus flows down and covers our every relationship. We meet others under the cross. Today, in this final week of Advent, we're considering the demand of the gospel on our relationships. And in particular, those relationships that cause us pain. Those people who have hurt us, who have wronged us in various ways. What does the gospel demand of us in those situations? When I am the object of wrongdoing, what does the gospel demand? Must I forgive my offender? Must I forget the offense? And what about justice? These are the final questions of our series. Matthew 18 is probably the most sustained treatment of the subject of forgiveness anywhere in the New Testament. But it comes to us not as a decree, not as an essay, but as a story. A gripping and tragic story. This parable can be divided into three scenes. I want us to look at each scene rather quickly, and then having heard the whole story, we'll apply it. We'll look at the demands of this parable, what it is that Jesus wants us to do. Peter is the one who prompts this parable. He comes to Jesus one day with a question. Jesus, he says, how many times must I forgive my brother? If my brother sins against me, how many times must I forgive? As many as seven times, maybe? Now, Peter thinks he's being generous with this suggestion of seven. In the Bible, seven is a number that signifies completeness. But Jesus takes Peter's number of completeness and he multiplies it. No, no, Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times, Peter. Now, this isn't to suggest that on the 78th offense, we are free to hold a grudge. It's the language of hyperbole, not calculation. See, Jesus is making the point that if we are still tallying offenses, if we're still counting, then we're not really forgiving. We're not really forgiving. And then he tells this story to make his point come to life. Now, a word of warning for you before we get into the story. A word of warning on this Christmas Eve. Everything Jesus says is true. But not everything Jesus says is easy. Scene one. Scene one, we could call the forgiving king. Jesus begins in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant 
the servant fell on his knees imploring the king, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So our story begins with a king. A king and a particular servant. Presumably, this king has a vast number of servants, but the camera zooms in on one debtor in particular, a servant who owes the king 10,000 talents. The talent was the highest form of currency in the Greco-Roman world. One talent was roughly the amount of weight that a stout soldier could carry on his back, so generally speaking, about 100 pounds of gold or silver. One talent was a lot of money. 10,000 talents was an inconceivable number. It was an impossibly large debt. It would have taken the average laborer 200,000 years of work to make this amount of money. In today's terms, this is a $400 billion debt. Billion with a B. It's an inconceivable amount an impossibly large debt. And that's the point. Jesus wants us to see that there is no way that this servant can pay back this king. There's no way. In the ancient world, the way that bankruptcy was dealt with was usually the person was sold into slavery. And so the king begins to make those arrangements, preparing for this man, his family, all of his possessions, all of it to be gone. But the servant comes to him in humility, in humiliation, and he offers to make restitution. He asks for an extension, more time. If you'll just give me more time, king, I will pay what I owe. But of course, an extension wouldn't have helped him. The debt was too large. It would have just prolonged the inevitable. There was no way he could pay back the debt. But the servant can't see the depth of his poverty. He can't see that in this situation he is penniless, powerless. There's nothing he can do. The king, however, can see it. And in an act of astonishing mercy, the king forgives the debt and releases the servant. According to this parable, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. We must see this. It's a form of voluntary suffering. For the king to forgive the debt means that he absorbs the debt himself. He must be willing to step into the situation and suffer so that the servant doesn't. If you loan your friend your car, and then your friend wrecks your car, and to make matters worse, the friend can't cover the cost of the damages, for you to say to that friend, I forgive you, means that he or she is not responsible for the debt. But that debt doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just magically go away. It's transferred. It's transferred from your friend to you. You absorb the debt. It's a form of voluntary suffering. Either now you have to go and pay for the repairs or you have to make do without a car. Either way, you've absorbed the debt. And that's what the king does here. The debt doesn't magically go away. He voluntarily suffers so that the servant doesn't have to. And then he sets the servant free. What a wonderful ending to scene one, that is. But in scene two, things take a dark, dark turn. Scene two, the unforgiving servant. Picking up the story in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Two things I want you to see as we compare scene one and scene two. First, notice the debts. They're very, very different. Now, the debt that is owed here, 100 denarii, this is not an insignificant sum. It's a couple of months of wages. But the whole point is it's ridiculously small compared to the debt of the opening scene. A few months of wages is nothing compared to 200,000 years of wages. So the debts are very different, as are the responses to the debts. In scene one, the king responds to the large debt with lavish forgiveness. In scene two, the servant responds to his fellow servant, the much smaller debt, by insisting that he gets what is owed him. He's even willing to use violence. He grabs his fellow servant by the throat. He begins to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. And when his servant friend asks for an extension, have patience, I will pay you, he's not willing to hear it. He is unwilling to grant an extension. He is unwilling to grant forgiveness. He will not suffer, but he will make sure this other servant does suffer. He has his fellow servant thrown into a debtor's prison. And there in prison he will suffer and he will pay back everything he owes or he will be there until he rots. Word of this servant's ruthlessness travels far and wide. And eventually it makes its way to the king. So the king summons him. They have some things to talk about. And that brings us to scene three. The abrupt ending where the unforgiving servant is thrown into an unforgiving prison. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The king summons the unforgiving servant and in essence says to him, How could you experience my lavish forgiveness? And treat others this way, with such an ungenerous attitude. How could you do such a thing? And with that, he throws the servant into debtor's prison. He treats the servant as if his debt never was forgiven. And now, this servant will be in this prison until he has worked off and paid back his entire debt. But remember how large the debt was. Remember that it was an inconceivable number. It was an impossibly large debt, which means this is a life sentence. Well, do you see what's happening in the story here? Jesus has crafted this tale so well. This unforgiving servant is now thrown into a prison that will be just as unforgiving as he was. It will never let him go. Such a tragic story. Why does Jesus tell it? What does he want us to learn from it? What are the demands of this parable for us? Having heard the story, we now need to apply it. Now, this is the tough part. This is where it gets uncomfortable, but we'll do this together. Let's apply the parable. The chief demand, the central point, is clear enough, right? Forgive the offender, whoever that is in your life. We've all been hurt. We've all been wronged. 
For you, maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's someone you will have Christmas dinner with this year. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a total stranger. This parable is calling you to forgive the offender. Jesus' closing comment on the story makes that very clear. Just after the unforgiving servant is thrown into the unforgiving prison, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is saying to us, it is not possible to experience the lavish forgiveness of God and to refuse to forgive others. But we need to ask the follow-up question here. What is forgiveness precisely? What is it? And this parable shows us. In the person of the king, God does four things. First, the king brings the servant before him. He summons the servant. Forgiveness begins with truth-telling, loving confrontation, exposing rather than excusing the sin. The debt is named. It's real. It's disgust. That's the first step. But then second, the king takes pity on the servant. This is where the internal heart work is done. The king looks to the servant and sees him not as a villain, not as a monster, but as a human. A human being who has made mistakes like every human being has. See, when we withhold forgiveness from someone, we do that because we exclude our enemy from the community of humanity. Meaning we treat him or her like some sort of subhuman monster. And at the same time, we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. We think of ourselves as saints. We forget that once we were dead in our sin, we forget that we struggle with sin still. The king takes pity, has compassion, sees the situation. The heart of the servant understands. And then step three. He cancels the debt. This takes us to the very heart of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. For the king to step in and cancel the debt means that he must absorb the debt himself. There's always a cost associated with wrongdoing, and someone must bear it. It doesn't just magically go away. But the king steps in and absorbs the debt so that the servant can be forgiven. And finally, so that he can be released. He releases the servant, meaning reconciliation has taken place. No cold shoulder, no cutting remarks that unearth past mistakes. The two have been reconciled. This is what forgiveness looks like. The end of this parable, it's abrupt, like I said, and it sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? When this servant is just thrown into prison and there he will suffer for the rest of his days. It sounds harsh, but actually it's very realistic. To have a spirit of unforgiveness is like living in a prison. You see, we think that by refusing to forgive that person who has hurt us, we think that that's hurting them, but actually it's hurting us. It's hurting us. To refuse to forgive someone, that's like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. You're only hurting yourself. You must deal 
with your unforgiveness, you must deal with your wrath. You know, it's interesting, that word wrath, it comes from an old Anglo-Saxon root. And that same root gives us the word wreath. Our wrath bends us out of our normal shape. It causes us to do things we never thought we would do. There's another word that comes from that same Anglo-Saxon root. It's the word wraith. Now, that's an old word. We don't hear it much these days unless you read Tolkien, maybe. A wraith is a spirit, a ghost. As legend has it, ghosts are stuck in some place where they once were hurt, where something was done to them that they can't get past. They're haunted by it forever. Friends, if you don't deal with your unforgiveness, if you don't deal with your wrath, it will make you a wraith. You'll be haunted by it the rest of your days. You'll live in a prison just like that unforgiving servant at the end of the parable. It's time to forgive. It's time to forgive the offender, whoever that is. I don't know who it is in your life. You do. You do. Two final questions we need to ask before we wrap up. See, typically sermons on forgiveness end right here. There's the call to forgiveness. Now go and forgive. But we haven't quite gotten far enough yet. I think there are two objections or misunderstandings that we must deal with. Otherwise, we haven't really dealt with this subject fully. And I want to give them to you in question form. The first one is, must I forget the offense? It's very clear from this parable that we must forgive the offender. But does that mean that we must forget the offense? We often hear that cliche, the canned answer, forgive and forget, right? Forgive and forget. And sometimes scripture is even dragged into that conversation. Passages of scripture that talk about God remembering our sins no more. But we need to think about what that means and what it can't possibly mean. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Divine omniscience can't forget. Not in the sense of mental recollection. God doesn't lose his keys. He doesn't forget to change the air filter. And he doesn't forget our sins. Not in that respect. When the Bible uses the language of remembering, when it talks about God remembering or not remembering, it's teaching us something about his action, not his recollection. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says, And God remembered Noah and all the livestock and all the beasts that were with him in the ark. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that for a while God forgot all about Noah? And then he had that light bulb experience and thought to himself, Well, gee whiz, Noah's still out there in that boat. I need to do something about that guy. No, no, of course not. And the reason we know that is because the first part of Genesis 8.1 says, And God remembered Noah. And the second part of Genesis 8.1 says, And God sent a wind. And the wind dried up the water and it subsided. When God remembers Noah, he's preparing to act on Noah's behalf. He's preparing to rescue him. He's intervening. So what that means is when the Bible says that God does not remember our sins, it doesn't mean that he suddenly gets amnesia. It means that he does not act against us. He does not punish us for our sins. And why not? Because Jesus has borne the punishment for us. So now take that and apply it to the people in your life that you need to forgive. To forgive someone is to say to them, I will treat you the way God treats me. I will treat you the way God treats me. I will remember your sins no more. It doesn't mean I have amnesia now, 
but it means I'm not going to act against you. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to torture you or seek vengeance. I'm not even going to secretly wish for your destruction. I will not act against you. That sin is not a controlling factor in our relationship. That's what it means to remember the sin no more. Now that leads to one final question that we must ask. What about justice? What about justice? How does that fit into this? And the reason I raise this is because I know that some of you are the victims of abuse. Physical abuse, sexual abuse. And so you must be asking this question, what about justice? If I forgive that person for what he or she did to me, am I not giving up on justice? And what I want to help you see this morning is you don't have to choose between the two. It is possible to pursue both forgiveness and justice. In fact, I would say it's necessary. It's necessary to pursue both. See, if you haven't done the internal work of forgiving your offender, if you haven't done that, then you won't truly seek justice. You'll seek vengeance. Secretly, you'll wish for their destruction. You'll wish for their suffering and their torture. Your wrath will make you a wraith. But if you've done the internal work of forgiveness, then you will desire justice, just treatment, and ultimately the transformation of that offender. You'll want the person to see his or her wrong and to change. And that makes them a better person. It makes the world a better place. And you haven't become a wraith in the process. It's better for everyone, you see. But you must do the internal work of forgiveness. So who is it? Who is the offender that you need to forgive? I want to end with a story, true story. It comes from an article that was published in Christianity Today many years ago. It's written by a, name, a man named Robert Smith. Dr. Smith was one of my preaching professors when I was in seminary many years ago at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. And when I was at Beeson, Dr. Smith's son was murdered. The title of this short article is Seeing My Son's Murderer. We'll close with this. Some moments are frozen in time. For me, it was October the 30th, 2010, 11.56 p.m., when our youngest son, Antonio Maurice Smith, at 34 years old, beat his father to the grave. A phone call awakened my wife and me. She answered, didn't utter a sound for what seemed an eternity. Tony, who was working at a restaurant, had been shot during an attempted robbery. I desperately asked God to save Tony's life and to glorify himself. I had great aspirations for my son. My prayer was that Tony be spared so he could serve God at a high level of consecration. But an hour later, another phone call informed us that he was dead, and my heart broke. During the trial, I saw the back of Tony's murderer, then 18 years old. I saw his mother and some family members weeping as the judge sentenced him to many, many years in prison. And I prayed. I prayed about my feelings toward and my relationship with this young man. Soren Kierkegaard was right when he contended that life has to be lived forward, 
but can only be understood backward. In life, some things happen that are not immediately perceived as beneficial. Following our son's murder, which did not seem to have any redemptive value, the question God asked me was, do you really believe what you preach? For 44 years, I had preached about the forgiveness that Joseph and Job and Jesus extended to others who brought great pain into their lives. I knew how to explain, illustrate, and apply forgiveness from a biblical perspective. Now God was telling me, if I really believed what I had been preaching, then I must, I must, by His grace, live that forgiveness now. So I asked prayer warriors to pray for me as I prepared to write the young man and to pray that he would add my name to the visitor's list so that I could come and tell him in person, Jesus loves and forgives you, and so do I. After nearly two years, in September of 2012, I finally mailed that letter. He added me to his visitor's list in 2014. And soon, by God's grace, I will see the young man whose face was the last face our son saw before standing in the presence of the Lord. And I will offer that young man the forgiveness that Christ offers to me and to all who will believe in him. Friends, we forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news of forgiveness, the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the life we certainly have not lived, and died in our place for our sins. That he was gloriously raised, that one day he will return to complete his plan for this world. We thank you for the good news of forgiveness. And God, we understand from your word this morning that you call us to display that same forgiveness. It is impossible for us to experience your lavish forgiveness and refuse to extend forgiveness to others. So help us. By the power of your spirit within us, help us. Show us whoever it is that we need to initiate a conversation with. Truth-telling is the first step. And then help us to have the pity, the compassion we need. Give us the strength to forgive. Help the relationship be restored. That'll take time. But we pray for first steps this Christmas season. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table now, we thank you again for the gift of your life, your body, your blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Nourish us now. Give us the strength we need to live for you each and every day, including forgiving others. And we long for the day of your return. In your name we pray. Amen.